Broadcasting live from the North Fulton Business Radio X studio, it's time for To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow. To Your Health is brought to you by Morrow Family Medicine, an award-winning primary care practice, which brings the care back to health care. I just love that guitar riff, don't you, John? I do. It is so nice. This is Dr. Jim Morrow, and this, this is the podcast To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow. We are hopefully about to get back to some sense of normalcy when it comes to doing our podcast. We have been, I have been, um, a little bit difficult to corral, I guess is a way to put it. I had COVID and COVID pneumonia two months ago and just didn't feel like doing anything for a while. And we're trying, I think, to get back to it. So hopefully this is going to be the beginning of the, the restart of every second and fourth Wednesday that we record a new podcast. I am here in my um, cluttered, covered up office studio, still working remotely doing these things. And John is in his incredible, I wish you could see this. He's in this incredibly lavish home studio. <laughs> he's got JBL speakers on the entire wall behind him. He's got Macintosh amps. He's got, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I mean, it's ridiculous. It's just crazy. And John, I, I appreciate you being here. I know you would rather be in Las Vegas, but I, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining me again today. I, I jetted in just for this one. <laughs> I knew you would after giving John Gruden some advice, I'm sure. Oh, um, dear. Well, well, and by the way, you're you're hard to corral anyway. It's just a different reason this time. Okay? So, yeah, that's true. I think okay. that's, that's fair. I think Peggy would fair. agree. I, I can promise you Peggy would agree. So um, today we're going to talk about medication errors, and I've got a reason I want to talk about that, not just the fact that it's important. But before we do, as I've been trying to do on most of these recently, recently being the last two years now almost, um, doing a little bit of a COVID update, and I wanted to talk about vaccine boosters because that's something everybody in the exam room seems to want to talk about. And I certainly get it, and I'm just <clears throat> so thankful that so many people have gotten the vaccine. It's unbelievably frustrating to go in the exam room and have this conversation. But <clears throat> if they are vaccinated, a lot of them are now wanting to look at when they should and should they, in fact, get a booster for their vaccine. The third dose of the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna, is identical to the first two doses. So you don't have to get a specific shot. It's just another shot. It's not anything that they've had to reduce the dose or increase the dose. It's just the same vaccine. And it can help protect people, especially people with a weakened immune system, which is a wide variety of people. And, and some people did not have a strong enough response to the first two doses because of their weak immune system. And they're, uh, they're very aware of that. So they wanted to try to get people this third dose and such people uh, can get the third dose as early as 28 days after the second dose. So if you are someone who is undergoing cancer treatment, if you have an organ transplant, you're taking medicines to suppress your immune system. If you've had a stem cell transplant within the last two years, and again, these people are taking meds to suppress their immune system. If you're diagnosed with what's called the George syndrome or Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, these are unusual, but they're out there and they also make you qualify. If you have HIV, if you have a high viral load or a low CD4 count, and people that have HIV know what that means, then you are 
eligible. And if you're taking drugs like high-dose steroids for arthritis and things like that, lupus and that kind of thing, even something like methotrexate for rheumatoid arthritis makes you qualify for this early dose. And again, this is 28 days after the second dose because the expectation is that you're not going to develop enough immunity to the first two. So that's a little bit different from what a lot of people are hearing about where they're waiting six months for after Pfizer and eight after Moderna to try to get a, a booster. Now, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, we really don't have good information about yet. It, of course, is the single-shot vaccine. It has been in the news and in the reports having more uh, complications probably than the other two, uh, but it's still a good vaccine. It's still 100% effective at preventing serious disease and death, which is why you would do the vaccine. And and so it's a very good vaccine, but we just don't have the new information on it like we do Pfizer, certainly, because it's already been FDA approved and has an emergency use authorization for a booster, or Moderna, which is a, not approved yet, but will be soon, and is working on an EUA for a booster. So how do you know if you need a third dose of this vaccine? Well, to me, it's very simple. If you're a person who gets vaccinations and you are a person who has gotten a COVID vaccination, then you need to follow through with the booster. There's, in the long run, not going to be any reason for anybody, I don't think, not to have the booster. Now, to get the Pfizer booster, but since it's been approved by the FDA, you have to meet certain criteria, and those are that you're 65 or older, and that's me. And John's at you yet? Not yet. Not yet. Whippersnapper. <laughs> so if you're 65 or older, or if you live in a long-term care facility, you qualify by law for the Pfizer booster. If you have underlying medical conditions, mostly the things that I was listing a minute ago, then you qualify. If you're at a higher risk of exposure because of your job or institutional setting that you're in, this is uh, healthcare workers, teachers, prisoners, even people that work in prisons because there's close quarters there, then that would be a situation where you would qualify for the, the third dose. I get asked a lot about, in fact, I think the last question I asked during this morning's session of seeing patients was, do I need to get the same vaccine that I got for the first two? And you don't absolutely have to, but what we know right now indicates that your third vaccine dose should be the same as what you got the first time. Uh, it, it might turn out in the long run that anything boosts your immunity, but we just don't know that yet. And that's one of the things about this entire thing that drives patients and doctors crazy is that we are learning and everybody in the lay community thinks we're just changing our mind and it just drives me nuts. But we are learning and we will learn something different about that. I can almost promise you. But right now, get the same vaccine as you had starting out and you'll probably be better off. If there's anything that we at Village Medical can do to encourage you to get a vaccine, please let us know. Uh, we are in the process at uh, Village Medical, used to be Mara Family Medicine here in Cumming and in Milton, Georgia. We're now in the process of getting listed as an administration site for the vaccines. Uh, the plan is to have both Pfizer and Moderna 
Uh, I don't know the timeline on that yet. The logistics of that is, are enormous, but we are working towards that to see if we can't encourage more of our patients to get vaccinated. So I said at the beginning that I wanted to talk today about medication errors and how to avoid them, how important they are to avoid and that kind of thing. And it sounds pretty simple and pretty straightforward when you say it like that, but it's a very, very, very big deal. So if you go back to 1998, December of 1998, this is a lifetime ago, seems like, that's when I started using electronic health records in my medical practice. I was with another group. I've talked about this in the past. I was with another group. We were just just hemorrhaging money from a transcription standpoint, needed to corral the costs, and electronic records seemed to be a way for us to improve the financial bottom line. And that was really the reason we did it. We didn't do it for quality because we were under the impression that we were practicing great medicine, but we did it for financial reasons. But it brought into the practice the ability to do an awful lot of things that we weren't doing at the time. Now, not too long after we went live with our electronic record, there was a report published uh, by a group called the Institute of Medicine that I think is in Washington, D.C., out of Washington. Uh, but the report was called To Air is Human. It was published in 1999, and it really shook up the medical world, especially the hospital world, when they reported that there were as many as 98,000 deaths attributable to medical errors every year in the United States. That's a lot of people. That is a lot of unnecessary deaths, and all of these were not medication errors, um, but a lot of them were. And so they started looking at what could be done to prevent these medical errors. And one of the things that it was felt pretty clearly could be done was to change to a computerized record system so that medications and lab values and diagnoses could be tracked so that they could be edited more easily so they could be shared in different sites and among different people and so forth. And so the very slow, laborious process of trying to get doctors to change which I can promise you is not easy, and to get them to change to a computerized system was started back in 1999. The move was in large part, as I mentioned, to help the sharing of records with the entire, quote, care team. That would be your primary care doc, your cardiologist, your surgeon, if you have one, your endocrinologist, all these people that are taking care of you, all of these people that are probably writing medications for you, all these people that are changing the doses of medications that you're taking. And it's a, a huge endeavor, and it took years to really even start making any headway at all. Um, multiple people, uh, hundreds, I'm sure, of mainly clinicians uh, were and administrators in hospitals were invited to testify to multiple congressional committees, so many that all of the hearings could not be done in the Capitol building. They were done all around Washington, D.C. And I was fortunate enough to be asked probably in about 2005, I think it was, to testify to one of these committees about our experience with electronic records and what he, we had seen as far as quality changes and such. And we had quite a list of statistics at the time and could really show that our quality had improved. But one of the main points in this report to Errors Human was about medication mistakes. And even today, this is a, a huge problem. 
and people die all too often, have bad outcomes all too often because of changes that doctors make in their prescribing and the medicines they're taking or patients are taking. And these changes are not accurately related or relayed to the patient or the caregiver. I mean, this is a huge problem. A doctor might have you in the exam room and he might change the, the dose of the medicine, the drug itself, the instructions as to when or how often to take it. And this is something that's often just said in passing to the patient. Well, let's change your Synthroid to 75 micrograms instead of 50. Okay, well, that's easy enough. And you send it to the pharmacy and the patient gets it and they keep taking it. But if you say to the patient, I want you to start taking this blood pressure medicine twice a day and you send it to the pharmacy and they're not paying attention. They might just continue with it once a day. And there are a long list of other problems that are a lot worse than those potential problems that can really play havoc with a patient's health. Uh, Pharmacies, especially mail order pharmacies, it seems, will purchase the next cheapest drug equivalent that they can get on any given day so that if you receive your refill from, again, maybe mail order, might not be, I don't want to just pick on them, but it's, I think, more common with them, then the look and the size of a pill that is the same medication as what you've been taking could be completely different from what it was before. And at first blush, you might think, well, that's no big deal. The bottle says it's Synthroid 75 micrograms, and so it is, even though last year or last time it was blue and this time it's green, Last time it was a pill, now it's a capsule and so forth. But it can make a huge difference. Patients become numb, really, to the changes in these medications, the fact that one looks different from one field to the next. So if you change things, the patient might very well not realize that a change has been made. The fact that the pill looks different is old news to them. It doesn't register with them that this is a new dose or a new regimen or new instructions they just say, well, the pill's different again. They must have gotten it cheap from China, so I'm just still taking it like I've been taking it. And the drug manufacturers, of course, change the way their pills and capsules look because they got a better deal on a blue one versus the brown one they've been using for years. So you can see how this can all set up to be a real problem. And I'll tell you right now, there's not a computer in the world that will fix this problem. This is not a computer problem. This is a people problem. And unless, as physicians, we are willing to take the time to be sure that patients and caregivers understand what we're doing and what we're changing and what we want them to be taking, then we're not going to really make great inroads in fighting this. And we need to because it's a huge problem. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about this today was that when my wife was sick, uh, about a month ago, uh, Peggy had a, a TIA in the middle of the night. I think I talked about this last time. Um, fortunately, it was just a TIA. 24 hours later, she was fine, but she woke up at 3 in the morning having stroke symptoms. And um, after looking at, after taking her to the hospital, spending the night there, coming home, going over the new medicines and so forth, she said to me, she said, I want you to look at my medications because I don't think they're all exactly right. And, and I want to say thanks Peg for letting me use your experience and tell people about it because I think it's a a very good example and it's just easier to tell using your name instead of as if it's someone I don't really know. 
So she had been taking one prescription, one prescription that was in order to get enough pills was five separate capsules. And I told her really just in passing too much in passing as I might even in the exam room on occasion, Hey, I'm going to change that to a 50 milligram capsule and you only have to take one. And again, that sounds easy to me. And then when I looked at her pills, I saw that she was now taking five of these 50 milligram capsules instead of five tens. I wanted her to take one 50 milligram, but she was not. She just went from five tens to five fifties. Cause again, every time you turn around, it looks different coming from the pharmacy. And it just really drove the point home. Now this had nothing to do with her TIA. Although when she <laughs> did have the TIA, her heart rate was 45 and her rhythm was irregular because of this particular medication that she had only done twice. Thankfully, she'd only taken it two nights like that. But that's a, that's a huge deal. And I can promise you that if that happens to my wife and I'm treating her for that because it's one of the type of things you can treat your wife for. If that happens in that situation, how often does it happen in a situation where the person goes home with next to no knowledge of medicine or medications and their caregiver has very little more and we're changing things hand over fist to try to make them better? And in what percentage of cases might we might we be making them worse? And it scared me and it made me want to do several things. One is I've made a huge effort in the exam room to be much more obvious, to be uh, writing things down, typing things out, printing things out for patients so that they can be, sh- I can be sure that they understand the changes we're making. And I've just, it made it important enough for me to bring it to this incredible audience that I have that I still don't understand having, and I'm thrilled to have so that you will understand that this is important to me and to others in this practice. And we want to take the time to be sure that we explain things to you so that you are getting the care you need and the medication you need and not medication that you don't need. Cause I think it's worse to not, I think it's worse to take the wrong or too much of a medication than it is to not even take it at all in just about every case. So, if you're not a patient of uh, Village Medical and coming in Milton, Georgia, then whenever you do go see your primary care provider or any doctor, if they talk about changing medications, make them make it very, very clear. It doesn't have to be written down. It doesn't have to be printed out. But it has to be very clear what you're going to do. And a lot of times you're going to find that this change doesn't happen in the exam room. You're there and you're taking a medication and you get some blood work. And when you're called back two days later with results, the message is to make a change. And if you don't understand the change, don't hang up the phone. Make whoever it is on the phone explain to you very clearly what's to be done so that you will understand. I think we've become very complacent with medications over all these years of having wonderful medications to take for any number of conditions. But we need to understand when we're taking them that this is a big deal. When you take those medicines, you're you're altering your metabolism in some way, hopefully in a good way, so that you can be healthier. And if you're not doing that right, you're going to get the opposite effect. So, John, I think that's what I've got on medication errors. And that whole story just gives me the chills. Yeah, I mean... So, 
I have to say this. If, if she had not said to me, I want you to check my medications, if she didn't have that gut feeling that mm. something about it wasn't right, that very honestly could have killed her. Yeah. Because that particular medication can change your heart rhythm to the point that you end up with a fatal arrhythmia, and it just scares me to death. So I think it's a big deal, and I hope people will take it seriously. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, you're – I mean <laughs> – I guess it's easy for people to take it casually that, Hey, that's, that's what happened to somebody else or what have you. But I mean, a hundred thousand people, that's, um, I looked it up. That's a city the size of Tuscaloosa. I mean, that's like wiping the whole town out every year. Um, right. I mean, a hundred thousand people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's serious. It is. Um, a serious problem, but let me ask you a question about it. So, you said part of the answer is not just technology, but it's with um, our our respective doctors themselves, and and taking the time is taking the time for some of these um, doctors a problem because of the kind of uh, care they're having to deliver. In other words, they're working for corporate. <laughs> kind of practices and they just don't have the time to spend on this question. I mean, I, I know I'm asking a loaded question <laughs> that sounds like I'm in the bag for, for uh Morrow family medicine and village medical, which I am because I'm a patient, but um, that's what it sounds like. That may be the result of. Well, I think it's, I think it's a fault of the system in general. Okay. Because in medicine today, we are, and, and we're starting to change this. Medicare and other insurers are starting to change this in great ways. And there's a phrase you don't hear every day. But at this point, we are still, as doctors, getting paid for seeing the patient. Mm. We're, pay, we're getting paid for that patient coming in, getting care, and leaving. And the more times you can do that during the day, the more widgets you can make, the more money you make. And so, yeah, I think a lot of times people are just going through trying to get to the next person, get to the next person, get to the end of the day. And one of the good things about the way things seem to be changing in healthcare and healthcare um, finances is that we're going to be getting paid more for keeping people healthy than for getting them well. And the biggest part of that means that we'll be basically getting paid to keep them out of the office or to have them in the office for more screening exams and, and things like that, where you're trying to find things you don't already know about. Mm. Cause that's how, that's really how we are able right now to, um, to decrease rates of a variety of different diseases, decrease rates of falls, strokes, all kinds of things like that by bringing people in and recognizing who's at risk that we didn't realize was at risk. Medicine has never been able to tackle it that way until now. And I think that will make a difference. But basically, like I said, it's a people problem. You've got to make the decision that you're going to be better at this. And if you do make that decision, you certainly can be better at it. It takes take some work, but uh, if you ever see, uh, your wife taking five times the amount of a medicine that she should be taking, and it's basically your fault that it happened, that'll make it worth the time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, 
So we've got a question uh, from our listeners, and thank you, listeners, um, for submitting questions. Um, speaking of how things are uh, trending as uh, the pandemic rolls, wherever it's rolling, what's this? You did a show, uh, I guess maybe it was this time last year, if I remember correctly, uh, about telehealth. The question is, kind of what what does that look like? now and is that something that are some of the uh, opportunities that were opened up for telehealth during the pandemic for doctors and patients to communicate in a different a way are those going to continue well so far they are continuing we've been very happy about that um, we are still doing telehealth pretty much every day uh, mostly for people who might have covid uh, because if it's pretty obvious that you have the symptoms of COVID, what we're trying to do is get people tested uh, wherever they can get tested. We don't have enough tests to do them all by a long shot, uh, but we get them tested. We do a visit on telehealth and we can uh, document that we've done that and we can get them signed up for this monoclonal infusion, the antibody infusion that you can get, which is really the only thing we have that treats COVID right now. And so we're using telehealth for that a great deal, but we're also still using it for, a variety of other things. They have not pulled back the uh, allowance on doing that kind of thing. They haven't said, you know, that after this date, you can't do them at all. I think they will cut back on what we can use it for. But I also think that everybody understands the benefit that that's brought. And I think we'll be able to continue with it at some level to some degree. Terrific. Uh, a booster related COVID booster related question. So, how does this it's flu sh uh, shot time uh speaking of older shows you did a show on the importance of getting your flu shot talk and about everybody should get one in october okay so uh <laughs> so that that gets to to the question is is it okay to get the booster and the flu shot at the same time or do you need to space that out or talk about that how that yeah. works I really need to put this on my forehead because I get asked this in every other exam room. You can take the flu shot and the COVID vaccine or the COVID booster, doesn't matter, at the same time. Okay. Now, that's not true for a lot of things. You, I would not want you to get the shingles vaccine offline before we started. You and I were talking about shingles and shingles vaccines, and it can knock you down a little bit. Uh, flu shot's just not going to do that. It just doesn't do that. And if someone tells you that it did that to them, something else happened to them besides the flu shot. So you can get flu and COVID vaccine at the same time. And if you ever see a vaccine that is called Flovid, they owe me money because I came up with that like nine <laughs> months ago. So, and Peggy's my witness. She'll tell you that I came up with Flovid <laughs> and Moderna is already working on a, a combination vaccine and, you know, working on it is very simple. It's got to prove to the FDA that it's okay to do it. Uh, and I think we'll absolutely see people getting a Flovid vaccine every fall uh, and I'll be living on my island, and they'll be sending me you know, a nickel at a time. It'll be great. Well, folks, uh, we we would ask of you, to, anybody that has this question about the flu shot and COVID, please send them this episode so that Dr. Moore doesn't get the, have to get this pasted on his forehead. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> so I can't tell you how much I appreciate people sending in questions. And by the way, you can do that by emailing to your health md at gmail.com that's the easiest way to do that and we do appreciate that very much i think we're coming up on the 
half hour, and I do try to be a good steward of everybody's time. So I, I think next time uh, we might talk about shingles and the shingles vaccine. John had that idea because he's old and thinking about getting shingles vaccine. <laughs> and uh, so we might talk about that next time. And that's on the fourth Wednesday of October. We'll produce another one of these if I don't get sick or John's not out of town. <laughs> so for now, that is to your health. <laughs>